the gospel. It's a story of how God created us to be in a relationship with himself. But time and time again, we stubbornly go on our own way. More importantly, it's a story of how God doesn't give up. He loves us so much that when we couldn't save ourselves, he sent his son to save us. He sent Jesus. How we come to know Jesus is the most important story in our lives. Not only is it the story that saved us, but it is also a story that has the power to help others. We call those stories testimonies because they tell the truth of who Jesus is. They testify about what he has done for us. And by sharing our story, we reveal his goodness and his grace to others. There is power in telling your story of how Jesus changed your life. And I believe that story can change the life of people around me. So I will tell the story of who I was and who I am becoming in Jesus. I will tell the story of what he has done in and through me. I will tell the story of how Jesus saved my life. I will testify. Hey, what's happening, everybody? My name is Noel, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad uh, you are here. We're going to start out today with a little pop culture quiz, all right? What do these eight people have in common? Right here. Check this out. Right here. Anyone? That's right. Every one of these people has been canceled. In, in one way or another, each one of them has been canceled, right? And that's why James Gordon has that look on his face, and so does Kanye, right? Because they have been canceled. And it's not just people and celebrities that in our culture that have been canceled. All across our political spectrum, we're told that we should cancel brands and stores and even beer. Heineken was canceled by the left, and Bud Light was canceled by the right. Now, depending on the one waters in which you swim, you may have wildly different views on whether each of these individuals uh, or different brands or different beers deserve to be canceled. You also likely have wildly different views on what this so-called cancel culture is and whether or not this cancel culture is a good thing or not. Some people believe that our culture is finally standing up to those in power. For instance, LeVar Burton uh, called it consequence culture instead of cancel culture. Others believe that this cancel culture thing in our moment right now is a strategy to shut down free speech. And here's the deal. I'm not here to take a position on this, <laughs> on whether or not it's a good thing, on whether or not uh, these people or these brands deserve to be canceled. I just want to acknowledge that this thing exists. And as I was wrestling through it over the course of the last couple of weeks, I, I came up with what I'm hoping is not an overly simplistic, but at least a descriptive enough attempt at a politically neutral definition for cancel culture. Here's my definition. Cancel culture says that because of a wrong you have done, all the good you have done is wiped away. And this is a fascinating shift in our culture. 
Because, you know, our culture used to believe in, in, in a lot of ways in this great cosmic scale, right? That weighed out all of the good that we've done versus all the bad that we've done. And we were judged accordingly in people's minds. As long as our good outweighed our bad, we're in good shape. And we sort of thought that God operated in the same way. And, and we tend to think that we land on the good side. Uh, there was actually a study done uh, about heaven and hell. And, and of Americans, this was like 20 years ago, so it's probably changed. But of Americans, something like 68% of Americans believed they were going to heaven. And guess what percentage of Americans thought they might be at risk of hell? One. <laughs> One percent. So what happens is we used to think about this grand scale, right? Good versus bad, uh, you know, moral versus evil. But now what we do is we assign weight to certain sins and they become so heavy on the scale that no amount of good we do can tip the scales back toward good. What's interesting is that actually might be closer to biblical truth. But it's not just certain sins that tip the scales. It's, it's all sins. In Romans 3, it says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. For all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the weight of our sin on that scale is so heavy that no matter how much good we do, we can't skip, tip the scales. In other words, every single one of us deserves to be canceled. And with that said, I, I suspect there are some things in your life that you have done that you believe are particularly weighty. There are some moments in your life where you're just hoping that the surveillance tape has been erased because if you ever got that thing out, you know you'd be canceled for sure. And, and so here's what's counterintuitive about all this. Our testimony, which is what we're talking about during this series, is not just of our wins, but it's about the things that should sink us. Because that is really the testimony that our world needs to hear. So it is precisely the things in our lives that we fear could cancel us that are the most powerful for us to be willing to share when we tell people our stories. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna go deep into the Old Testament and look at a familiar story for those of us who've been around the church. So if you have your Bibles and you know where it is, uh, go back to 2 Samuel. So it's like about, I don't know, one-fifth through your Bible, like right there. Um, but in 2 Samuel, we're gonna start in chapter 11, verse one, where it says this. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And so it seems like kind of a benign introduction to the story, but it actually really starts out badly. It, it, what does it say? It says, in the springtime, when kings march out to war. In other words, David, as the king, that's kind of what he was supposed to do. Springtime was war, a wartime. It was kind of like spring training, right? Everybody marks on their calendars, they place their bets, and then the kings run out and do their war. But David was bucking the trend. Uh, was that because he was a, a hippie, you know, peace signs everywhere and that whole thing? No. Was, he, was he more interested? 
in diplomacy than, than warfare? No, no, no. It actually gives us the reason why he didn't go out to war. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very uh, beautiful woman. And instead of going to war, he takes a nap. <laughs> he goes for a stroll on the roof. David appears bored. And boredom is often a recipe for trouble. <laughs> because when we have nothing better to do, we doom scroll right on our phones or we uh, binge uh, Netflix. And, and I'm all about doom scrolling some of the time and binging Netflix some of the time. Hey, take your break. This is all David did, right? But he, of course, he didn't have a phone. He didn't have a TV. So he just wanders around on his roof. And from his rooftop, he sees a woman bathing. He sees a very, it says here, a very beautiful woman. And see, what, the context here is that there are a lot of homes in, in this time would have had big walled uh, gardens, right? So there'd be this outdoor wall with this courtyard, and they were considered part of the home. And so they were a private garden area, and that's where she was likely bathing. She would have been considered herself in a private location. And there's something important to understand here. She wasn't like bathing out in her yard where everybody could see her, right? It was a private place. And the problem was David's castle, right? His palace was located at the top of the mountain overlooking the city where he could see everything. He could see into everyone's courtyards. And this is when somebody, you got to ask the question, had David done this before? We don't know the answer to that question, but he had a unique vantage point that nobody else in the city had. How often had David let his boredom cause his eyes and his mind to wander playing peeping Tom over the whole city? And we don't know this for sure because the text doesn't tell us, but I suspect that this was not an accident nor the first time. Because the reality is, people don't fall into sin like this accidentally. Little sins become medium-sized sins, become big sins, and we become so accustomed to them that we become numb. Case in point, uh, this was a couple months ago. I was on an airplane, and, and the person, he was an older guy, so older even than me, and I'm an old guy with gray beard and bald head, right? He was kitty-cornered to me on the airplane, and the whole flight, he was on the internet, on his phone, on Instagram, looking at pictures of young girls and kind of zooming in on her body, their bodies, right? And, and, and the, the thing, the fact that he was doing this at all um, was creepy enough, right? But it was stunning to me that this guy would do it on a plane and think nothing of it, knowing that anybody sitting in any of the seats kind of around him could see it. Because you don't just kind of fall into that. He had gotten to a point where probably the first time he did something like this, he would have been embarrassed if anybody saw it. But then slowly, over time, you just kind of get numb to that. So I think David, this is my conjecture. Again, it's not here in the text. We can't be dogmatic. I think he's done this before. But one way or another, David sees this woman, this woman of uncommon beauty, She's naked, she's in her bathtub, and he dispatches someone to go find out who she is. And now David is no longer bored, and the report comes back. Look at verse 3. It says, so David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, isn't this Bathsheba? daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite. And so he knew who she was, at least he thought, and he sent somebody to check and see if that was actually her. Now, that whole little description of who this guy, this, this woman is, it means nothing to us 
but it meant everything to David. Notice he knew who she he was, and, and, and who is this guy, Uriah? Well, Uriah was out fighting the war that David should have been because springtime was when the kings went out to war. So instead of going out and doing the battle, he's at home board. This guy is out fighting for him, right? And, and, and so he looks over the city. He sees this gorgeous woman. He turns up the fact that it is in fact her. And so he sends away for this woman because who's going to refuse the king? Verse four, David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. So, so let's just call a spade a spade here. This is a clear abuse of power. There are some people that like to use the word affair for this thing, but let's just face the facts. David was a king. David was this woman's husband's boss, in a sense. And, And in between them sleeping together and returning home, there's this little bit of foreshadowing in the situation. It would seem at first glance, like right, like David had kind of pulled this off. He pulled, brought her in. It was an abusive situation. Sent her back. Seems like he would have gotten away with it. Um, he had satisfied his boredom at her expense. Gotten away with it. Secret safe. But there's a strange piece of information right in the middle of the text. Did you see it? It says, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. This is called foreshadowing. Because it meant that at the moment that she and David were together, she was in the right moment of her cycle to conceive of a child, which she did. So while David is feeling secure that his secret sin here is safe, his child is growing inside of this woman. Her name is Bathsheba, inside of her womb. But then, you know, he he gets that text from her. (laughs) Two words that change everything. She lets him know that she's pregnant. And now David's secret life was in jeopardy. Why? Because remember, her husband was away at war. So let me just stop for a second. Have you ever been in a situation, not exactly like this, but a situation like this where there's kind of a secret sin going on in your life and you think you got it locked up? You feel secure. And then that secret gets threatened What do you do? Well, if I've watched enough TikTok videos of people being arrested, which I have, way too many, the first thing that happens is people try to concoct a plan to keep their secret world safe and to see if they can lie their way out of it. And that's exactly what David does. He sends for Uriah, the husband, and has him come back from the front lines. And, and he, you know, he asks him, you know, how are things going? Tell me a little bit about the war, blah, blah, blah. And then verse 8, it says, then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. You see what David's doing? You know exactly what David's doing. He's like, you have been working so hard, Uriah. Go home, relax, wash your feet. In fact, here's a gift. We don't know what the gift is. I think it was a bottle of bubbly, some scented candles, right? Something to set the mood at home. He's clearly sending Uriah home to be with his wife, who he had not seen for a long time. He knew exactly the kind of relaxing Uriah was likely to do. Gave him the gift and everything. Sent him home, verse 9 and 10. It says, but Uriah slept at the door of the palace 
with all his master's servants, he did not go down to his house. And when it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come home from a journey? Why didn't you go home? He's like, he's like you, you really need to go home. There's a little wink, a little nudge, right? Like he's trying to send him home to his wife. Verse 11, Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents. My master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife as surely as you live? And by your life, I will not do this. <laughs> so what I got here is this man has incredible character, right? And it is really screwing up David's plan. And so finally, as a last resort, David gets him drunk uh, gets him talking about his wife and then sends him home again, right? And he's, like, and he's like, go home to your wife and tomorrow I'll send you back out to the army. Like, go home to your wife. And, and even drunk, Uriah wouldn't do it. I mean, like, like this guy, better man than I am, right? And, and Uriah just wouldn't go. And so David gets more and more agitated. And finally, he draws up an executive order. Check out this order. He sends Uriah back to the front line with a sealed message from him. So this is coming from David and Uriah has to be the one to deliver it. And the message says, put Uriah into the front lines of battle. He's literally signing his death sentence and sending him to death's door. And the cherry on top is he had Uriah deliver it. So Uriah heads back to the front lines where the kings were supposed to be at war. And, he, and he's stationed at the front line, and not just at the front line, right up against the city, right up against the wall where the archers would look down, you know, with their bow and arrow. And, 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 and not just that, it was right at the gate where, like, the opposing army uh, was stationed. And so David's plan obviously worked. Uriah was killed, and a messenger was dispatched to David with news from the battle. And, and this is the, it says, then the messenger left. Um, oh, uh, yep, sorry, I went through, I, I skipped. Uh, this is basically, they have this conversation where this messenger comes back and talks to David about how terrible the battle is, and David just fishes and fishes and fishes for information until he gets the guy to say that Uriah has been one, the man who died. And so here, here's the, the thing. Then the messenger left. Uh, um, or when he arrived, sorry. He reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger reported to David, the men gave advantage over us, came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Oh, and your servant Uriah, the Hethite, is also dead. So let's be real here. David probably received this news the same way Putin received the news of that Wagner dude getting shot down over Russia this week. Oh no, right? Did that really happen? Verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. In other words, you win some, you lose some, right? That's kind of like David's response. Uriah's lost, the army's lost, but it's David's game because David's secret is now safe. He marries Bathsheba. He calls it a day. Problem solved. 
except for one little loose end. Verse 27. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. God knew David's secret. That's always the loose end. Can I tell you a secret? Your secret's not actually a secret. I know that you know this intellectually, but God knows your secret. In fact, there's, there's a verse in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 13, that says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God. Let that sink in for a second. Everything is, is naked before God. Everything is exposed, not just our sins, but your, your innermost thoughts, right? Your, your innermost desires, those haunting memories of things that have been done to you in the past. It's all right there on the table for God. And, 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 and top of all that, we are ultimately accountable to God, as is everyone involved in our secret. And so it was to this God that David eventually wrote a song to be sung about his life. It's in Psalm 17, verses 1 through 6. He says, Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer from lips free of deceit. Let my vindication come from you, for you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin concerning what people do. By the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are on your path. My feet have not slipped. I, I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen close to me and hear what I say. Now, now here's, here's the thing. We don't know when David wrote this particular psalm. It doesn't tell us. It just says that this one is a, a prayer of David. But the bottom line is, God answers these prayers. He'll even answer the end of David's prayer, which is down in verse 14, where he says, With this hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life. You get the poetic nature of what he just said? Save me from men whose portion is this life. People who cannot get enough of this life. People who are not focused on your law, God. People who are not concerned about who they hurt, God. That's a pretty good description of David himself. Now again, we don't know exactly when he wrote this psalm. But we do know that for David, all seemed to go well <laughs> for years. And it seemed like he had successfully covered over his sin. And I imagine the first few weeks, even after he married Bathsheba, he probably didn't sleep well. And it probably over time, he was able to get more and more confident that his secret was safe, that it was tucked away in a corner so that no one would ever look in that little corner over there. But it nagged at him anyway. 
We know it nagged at him because he wrote that in another psalm. In Psalm 32, he said, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. Have you ever been there? (laughs) Where the way that it felt this week in our Michigan humidity, right? (laughs) Is how you feel emotionally. Your strength is drained from the summer heat because you're lying there awake at night knowing that you've messed up your life and it could completely come back and crumble on you. And David just knew this feeling. When he remained silent, it was as if the bones were brittle within him. His groaning happened all day long. And so he busied himself with work. And and one of the things that David did for work as a king is he would settle disputes among people, right? He would parcel out justice. People would come to him and say, give their situation. And he would just rule kind of like a judge, right? And so one day, a guy named Nathan showed up on the scene and he was presenting a dispute, uh, right? And so he, he, he says to David, he said, okay, David, here's the dispute that I need you to settle. There's this rich dude and, and the rich dude owns like, like this endless supply of, of sheep and cattle, right? Okay, and then there's this poor dude, and this poor dude has no possessions at all, right? And, and the only thing that he has in the entire life is like this tiny little lamb, and he loves this lamb. He lets the, the lamb like eat from his plate. He lets him drink from his cup, and, and, and he, you know, he puts him in all the family Christmas card photos, right? And so he just loves his little lamb, right? And, and one day, the rich man has had a friend who was coming over for dinner, but instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, one of his own cattle, his huge farm, his, 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 his ranch full of animals, right? He went to the poor man's house and he grabbed this little lamb and he slaughtered this little lamb and he fed it to his friend. And he says, David, what, what should we do about this? <laughs> and it says this, verse five, uh, or where is it? Psalm 32, verse five. I just keep, oh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 5. Man, I keep flipping to the wrong spot in my Bible, don't I? 12, 2 Samuel 12, verse 5 says, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. <laughs> because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. The king had pronounced his judgment. The man deserved to die. So Nathan looks at David and says this. You are that man. What David didn't know was that Nathan was a prophet of God. He said, you are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says to you. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your wife. You murdered him as if with the Ammonite sword. Now, now therefore, the sword will never leave your house. 
because you despised me and took the wife of your eye, the Hittite, to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel in broad daylight. <laughs> Remember what David had prayed? God answered his prayer. And by the power of hand, his hand, he was going to destroy what David loved. David was crushed. He continued to deny the charges to protect his secret life. Look at verses 13 and 14. David responded to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son that was born to you will die. Imagine that crushing blow. If you were in David's shoe, you'd be like, like, no, punish me, not my son. And you know, when I read stories like this in the Bible, they bug me. Like there's this little child that is suffering because of his dad's sin, but it, it's such a common story, isn't it? How many secret lives have exploded and the pain and suffering has fallen on the loved one of the person with the secret life? David's son did indeed die. And he eventually had another son. And that son was a boy named Solomon who would grow up to be the wisest man that ever lived. And one day he would write a book to his son on the meaning of life. And this is one of the things he would say. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. So many of us expend so much effort, like David, trying to hide our secret sins, that we forget that God knows. <laughs> and when the, the secret finally comes out, things change. David would go on to write these words in Psalm 32. He said, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. And so what happens is for so many of us is we are so convinced that our lives will be absolutely over if our secret sins are known. And it's a reasonable fear because the world around us is quick to condemn, quick to judge, quick to cancel. And you know what? We deserve it. Earlier I brought up that verse in Romans, but I only read part of it. Let me read it in context. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and, that's what that little semicolon means, <laughs> they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in 
Christ Jesus. Let me say it this way. The weight of our sins has tipped the scales. We all deserve to be canceled. And there's nothing we can do. There's no amount of good that we can do that can pay for the damage of what we have done. But there's another force at play. Jesus. And Jesus is not just a good guy. Jesus is the good guy. He is perfect. His character is unassailable. He faced every temptation that is common to man, and he didn't sin. He was betrayed and hated, and he never flinched. And then he was canceled. He was crushed. He was maligned. He was killed. And the goodness of Jesus means that his sacrifice tipped the scales so heavily for us that no wrong that we do can counteract his good. That is why David, who was really messed up, filled with, let's be honest, perversion and evil, could land in Hebrews 11 in the Bible, which is called the Hall of Faith. It's why God referred to David as a man after God's own heart because he turned in repentance toward God, looking forward down the corridor of time to this Messiah that would one day come and tip the scales. It is scandalous that God would save somebody like David. And this is the message the world around us needs to hear. Your sin doesn't have to define you. Jesus loves you. Jesus offers you forgiveness. And there's no strings attached. The message that our world needs to hear, I call it the gospel cancel culture. And it's a great cancel culture. Gospel cancel culture says that because of the good Jesus has done, all the wrong you have done is wiped away. Let me just read some scripture for you. If you need to, because you're wrestling with something in your own life, just close your eyes and listen. Colossians 2.14. Jesus erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So here's my evangelism challenge for you for this week. Boast in your weakness. 
Well, how in the heck is that evangelism? How is this about testifying to Jesus and telling people about him? Well, here's how. Our age is so polished online. We are so afraid of being canceled that we're terrified for people to see the real us. So let them see it. Be real. Admit when you're wrong. Ask for forgiveness. You do that often enough trusting that Jesus has got your back and people are gonna ask you why you feel so free to be around. And when they crack that door open for you, don't just say, well, I'm actually pretty great at this. <laughs> Boast in your weakness and take an opportunity to tell them about Jesus who is strong. Today, we're gonna witness some baptisms. And baptism is the ultimate picture of the scales being tipped for us. When someone goes down into the water, they are declaring that just like Jesus was buried, their old life with all of their sins that deserve to be canceled, right, are buried with them. And when they come out of the water, they're declaring that Jesus has risen from the dead and they therefore are reborn into new life. That's what it symbol, symbolizes today. And so today we are going to celebrate Jesus canceling the debt we owed, Jesus giving us his life so that we can live eternally. So let's pray, and then we're going to watch some people get dunked. All right, so Heavenly Father, we just thank you that despite our secret sins, despite our public pain, despite all the things that we have done, the things that have been done to us, Jesus tips the scales for us. So we just pray that we would be brave. That we'd be brave to do what David did by writing these psalms. That we would be brave like the Apostle Paul was when he wrote that he was the chief of all sinners. Let, let us be bold enough to proclaim our weaknesses, to confess our sins, so that we can point to a Savior that loves us so much that nothing can separate us from him that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We pray that as we watch these little mini sermons of people being baptized today, we would remember what Jesus has done for us. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.